Tim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Lots of fun stuff to get into today. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you having me. Looking forward to it as well. Absolutely. You have a couple of kind of taglines throughout your internet presence, you could say. And one that stuck out to me and a question I had about it was one of your big goals as a coach and consultant with a business is helping entrepreneurs get unstuck. What would you say are like the main reasons why the entrepreneurs that you're working with find themselves stuck in the first place? Yeah, I think uh, especially nowadays, so many people are trying to replicate what somebody else has done. Uh, and in many cases, there's, you know, there's just a lack of confidence due to confusion uh, and a lack of clarity around what next steps to take. So, you know, if you take that and you mix it with this idea of, you know, feeling like you look like everybody else and you're struggling to kind of get attention and attention is the currency of today, the combination of feeling like I can't make progress and I'm not sure how to move from there leads a lot of folks, especially first-time business owners and entrepreneurs, that uh, it just, you know, ends up in paralysis. Uh, and when you try so many different things, and I think especially now, uh, a lot of folks are wired to take a step and see if it worked. And as we probably, anyone who's been around the block knows, you know, it's more than just the one step. You have to kind of continue down, uh, down a certain path with a certain amount of grit to be able to get the outcome. And so I see a lot of folks kind of taking one step, not getting immediate gratification, not getting where they want to go, and then trying something else. And you get into this kind of never-ending cycle of, of attempts, if you will, and not, not really making any progress. Yeah, it sounds like you're helping people dramatically with expectation setting is, is a big piece of it. Yeah, and, and in some cases, especially folks that are kind of going through a new experience or they're launching a new product or going into a new vertical or whatever it might be, uh, sometimes, quite frankly, I they need me to they need my confidence in them. I kind of lend that to them through the process, uh, and so that certainty that I can have in them and the clarity that I can provide them is how we're able to condense you know months into minutes, uh, and then be able to help them move forward uh, from there from that that kind of paralyzed state. Yeah, that's another one of your really nice lines I had written down on my notes over here. Is you're all about accelerating time. Yeah, I, I believe that anybody can pretty much figure out anything uh, on their own. But, you know, if it takes you a decade uh, and I can share with you my learnings and give you the playbook uh, that'll that you can execute in an hour, you know, what is the value of, you know, 10 years of time? Uh, and it's significant, right? So, you know, we live in a world right, right now where there are so many mentors, there's so many guides that can help us. Uh, and, you know, it's the, the common phrase of it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so people come to me because, you know, they want to be able to get that clarity. They want to uh, avoid those foreseeable mistakes and condense that that, that learning curve, if you will, uh, to be able to, to move forward and make progress uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. I'll give you a more thorough chance to kind of more properly introduce yourself in terms of like what specific, I don't want to say industry, that's not the right word, but categories do you specialize in, in terms of type of people you help, sophistication, of where they are in their journey, kind of when you're the right person to help them get from, right? Most, a lot of people think every coach takes people from A to Z. A lot of people are like, I don't want to work with people A or B or C, or, but once you get to D, I'm your guy and I'll take yeah. you all the way from here to here. So where, and then you can also share kind of a little bit of the background, how you got to deciding this is the right thing for you to be doing right now. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So uh, my core client, is, you know, service-based business owners, you know, doing 750K, a million a year or more, uh, choose to work with me because I use product to create a category of one, which eliminates the competition. 
Uh, and then we install a profitable acquisition system for them. So they never have to choose between financing the business and funding their family. Uh, and so that's kind of the critical starting point. And then from there, we talk about how to build uh, you know, a business from one to three million or three to five million or, or what have you. So uh, how I got here uh, is a little bit of a varied journey, uh, but it all makes sense, I swear. Uh, I started in, uh, went to school for uh, economics and finance, found my way into the alternative, uh, alternative investment space uh, in like 2004 to 2008. Uh, and raised over $350 million for a long short equity hedge fund. So did capital raising and, uh, and investment management for a period of time. And then from there, and then we ended up giving all that money back, which is a story in and of itself. And then when you say giving it back, do you mean like- I returned every dollar. Okay, because that's also an expression sometimes for like losing all of the money. Nope, no, we voluntarily- okay. <laughs> okay. About $348 million on 1231, yeah. Yeah, where I come from in, in Las Vegas, right? The yeah. casino gives you money and you give it back. Oh, yeah. It's, no, no, it's, this one was... It, it's not you returning the money to the casino. It's... Yes. Yeah, no, no. Spot, spot on. Yeah, it wasn't due to performance. It was uh, it was a strategic decision on our part and, and, and with our investors. So, uh, and then from there, my wife and I uh, and got into a technology-driven fitness concept, which uh, allowed me to uh, build a technology company from the inside out, which was fantastic. And that led me to an introduction to uh, Alex and Layla Hormozzi over at Gym Launch. Uh, and I came on board uh, at, uh, as the VP of Business Development and Strategy for Gym Launch, uh, which as many folks now know, Alex and Layla, uh, we went on to sell uh, two thirds of that company about a year and a half ago to a private equity firm. Uh, and Alex is now running uh, acquisition.com, helping have $10 million plus revenue businesses get bigger. Uh, my sweet spot has always been kind of the smaller end of the spectrum. Uh, and as a father of three, I have kind of a personal mission to to figure out for myself how I can have a family and a successful business uh, and help me share that with others uh, and enable others to, to do the same. Have you been consulting along the kind of whole progression as an additional thing to do? Or did you kind of around the time of the exit have more time on your hands to say, okay, let me kind of reflect on everything that I've learned from this journey, scaling gym launch and these other several endeavors? Yeah, I, it's really been in the last year, year and a half or so uh, that I've done it in, in earnest. I've always had kind of side projects depending on kind of where in that life cycle uh, or the the the, uh, the life I was, which chapter of my life I was in. Uh, but really in the last year and a half, and, and I think this probably resonates with anyone who's closed one chapter and moved into another. Uh, I went from one thing to the next and I've been incredibly proud and and very thankful that I've always kind of had the next thing lined up. And I quite honestly took uh, almost six months uh, to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, as I said, I'm a father of three uh, and I kind of hit a point in my life where it was not just let's go to the next thing and the next thing. Uh, it was what do I really want to do? And, and I think one thing that I learned from, from Alex and Layla specifically was, you know, this idea of legacy. Uh, and we, we talked a lot about kind of all these great achievements that we focus on day in and day out will quite frankly be forgotten. Uh, and what is the impact that I can have, uh, you know, during the, the rest of my life here? Um, and I've just always skewed more towards that, uh, that person who wants to see others succeed. And, and so I just went full boat into, you know, I know what the entrepreneurial journey looks like. Uh, I've, I've laid in bed staring at the proverbial ceiling fans, you know, wondering how the heck we were going to, you know, pull something off or raise money or, or make a go of it. And, 
you know, having to hopefully not tell my kids that, you know, we lost the house, that kind of idea. So I know what that pain feels like. Uh, and so I, I'm trying to kind of use the, the varied uh, experience that I've had to, to help the next round of entrepreneurs hopefully avoid uh, those types of experiences. Well, let's keep talking a little bit about what you do when you help, right? Again, another kind of mission statement that you have really nicely laid out is, you know, my goal is for your business to be better and more profitable. Let me make sure I have that right. Better and, oh, what? Yeah, just... I, I don't have it written down verbatim. The chicken problem then uh, after you've met me, then before exactly. you, before you met me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you know, I I have always been the number two. I've been the number two to two now billionaires. Uh, I've founded six of my own companies, founded or grown six companies of my own. I, I didn't appreciate for a long time the the difference between being the number one guy and the number two guy. I mean, it makes sense, kind of just on its face. But I always liked being the guy behind the guy. I wasn't trying to go for the spotlight. Uh, I wasn't trying to make a name for myself and things like that. So, you know, I think I have a wiring which allows me to, somebody once told me, you have equal strength in strategy and tactics. You can see the forest and you can see the trees so we can kind of plot the course, but also I can build the plan. And so that kind of unique combination of, you know, how do we, consciously build the business from here to there, wherever we want to go. But then a lot of people are like, great, now I've given you all my ideas, have at it. Uh, yeah. It never resonated. It always bothered me that like, I could tell you to do anything, but if I'm not accountable to the outcome, how valuable is my advice? So I like being in a position where I can lay out the plan and then we help execute it. So, uh, you know, that comes with product. It's, it's I, I, I look at it in three ways. Uh, we look at product. We look at pricing and we look at positioning, and that can be front end and back end. And looking in those three lenses allow us to effectively pull the business apart and then put it back together again in a better way that, uh, you know, better call it value vehicle uh, than, than might have been there in the past. I think, yeah, just my brain's going between so many different things that, uh, that apply from what you're talking about to, to what it is that I do. And I think that kind of about what you're saying earlier when we first started talking is people try to copy or imitate maybe yep. something. But the problem is like imitating without the nuance. It's like imitating what you see, but what you see is not the whole strategy. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that like gets the sum of the parts. You know, people pick and choose the parts that resonate with them, but they mm -hmm. miss the, the the through line, right? So for example, you can say, you know, and, I, and obviously Alex is famous for writing the book, $100 million offers. I have a lot of conversations with folks like, I just need a better offer. It's like, you don't just need a better offer. You need a better product, which will then allow you to change your pricing metrics, like the, the range of prices and potentially even, you know, kind of where on the, on the value scale you place yourself. And by doing those two things, you've now articulated and signaled a type of positioning to the marketplace about who you are and what you do. So if you don't change the rest of the business, you can come up with different offers all day long and you can probably come up with some good ones, but it doesn't necessarily make a valuable sellable business, which is actually something that I focus a lot on, especially for you know parents, uh, entrepreneurs who are parents. It's the number one wealth building vehicle that they look to. So how do we think about building permanence in a business and not just, you know, uh, the old adage of, you know, making a sale to get a customer rather than getting a customer to make a sale. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. 
you have specifically laid out six profit activators. Mm-hmm. Or is this kind of separate or are those or pr- profit and positioning? Those are like two of the six. Uh, no, that's the, the activators are kind of a combination of these, uh, but they okay. all fall under this kind of price, uh, price profit positioning. Uh, now we're back to strategy back. and tactics. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. It's, it's, you know, one is what we're doing and the other one is how we do it. Yeah. So, and, you know, as far as using those three levers, you know, uh, for example, there's six types of products you can offer. And so one of the things we talk, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, clients about is when we started, I did this for about, about 10 years. When we started, we were a gym in the traditional sense with some kind of better bells and whistles and, and equipment and things like that. But positioning wise, we were a gym to the marketplace. Our product was basically fitness services. So you could come in and work out. And our pricing was $69 a month, fairly straightforward. It was a bear to acquire new clients. And the reason was, is because we thought we had a better mousetrap, but the market, all they saw was that you were a high priced gym because I could go to Planet Fitness for $10 a month. So positioning wise, we didn't stand out. So we couldn't even talk about our differentiation in a real way. And it kept our ability to price well, very, very, uh, you know, kind of uh, contained. We changed our positioning through product from a gym to a transformation center. So instead of saying, come here for a certain service, we said, come here for a certain outcome. And instead of just offering gym services, we did nutrition and we did accountability coaching. And our average price point went from $69 a month to $249 a month. And the difference, the majority of it was, was high margin. So you look, so we used product and a positioning statement and changed our pricing along the way. A lot of, I think a lot of businesses, especially when you differentiate yourself, like I said, using product, product uh, to create a category of one, the thing you need to do is to understand who your core client is and then give them the whole journey. And by doing exactly. that, you can actually create a very, very strong enterprise at a very sticky business. Yeah. On, on the previous point, when we were talking about Alex's book, you know, $100 million offers, you said everyone's kind of going about it the wrong way, like reading his book and trying the wrong idea. And that's not to discredit the book. That's just to people still wanting to like think in a convenient way. What I immediately thought of was they are just not selling a valuable transformation. So there's not a arsenal of tactics you can basically to redecorate what isn't a valuable transformation into becoming a, a valuable transformation. If we said, okay, we're a $69 gym and all of a sudden my new offer is uh, we, we kind of pioneered the six-week challenge, uh, a high-ticket challenge at you know, basically a $600 price point, we could say everything stays the same except instead of a free, you know, free trial, we're now going to charge $600 for six weeks. That would have fallen on its face because we weren't able to actually deliver on the promise. The reason why Gym Launch was so successful was we gave gyms across the country and really across the world uh, a playbook to deliver a higher level of service and therefore command a higher price. And I think a lot of businesses price to the lowest common denominator. They're either afraid to charge more or they're not a, their product isn't tight enough to command more. So if we tighten up the product, we can ask for more and creating a, what we term a self-liquidating offer is the goal. So for every $50 of ad spend you put out there, you get $100 of revenue. And that, that ends up being a very nice kind of uh, uh, flywheel on which to build a, a, a successful service business. One additional flywheel that you speak about a lot is, so there's, again, the paid acquisition. You have something that you spend $50 and you're reliably making 100 for every 50 you spend. Yep. On the other side... Uh, and obviously there are resources involved in building this type of system, you have referral engines and 
uh, joint vendor partnerships. And to rewind for a second, I think it might be helpful for some people to you give an additional example of kind of that same type of like failed transformation offer or a lack thereof in like a traditional service business rather than fitness. Because I think for health, it's really easy for people to contextualize that example of a gym is not, you know, a gym versus a gym versus a gym versus like losing weight and like the the actual outcome. What's like a way that like a business to business operator might kind of go through that same progression? Yeah. So uh, a couple of examples. So uh, under the gym launch umbrella, I built a uh, led a project called Allen. And the idea was using machine learning to uh, help more appointments show for a sales appointment effectively. So it was a lead nurturing uh, product. And through that experience, I worked with a number of different service-based businesses. So one example would be uh, a mattress store. Mattress stores feel like they're all the same. I come in and I buy a mattress. That is a single point in time. And all of them, all mattress stores effectively could say that they are all pure competitors and nobody stands, stands above the other. But if you think about what is the outcome that someone who is looking to buy a mattress is looking for, they're not looking to buy a mattress. They want better sleep. So if you think in the context of how can I become a better sleep provider? Then you don't just sell mattresses. You sell pillows, you sell sheets, and you sell the sprays, and you sell all, some of those are recurring revenue opportunities as well. Uh, And so you kind of transform the language from a product-based sale to more of a solution-based sale. You can think of, I mean, every B2B, you know, marketing is a great, you know, marketing agencies are a similar thing. You know, are you selling ads or are you selling an acquisition system? Are you, you know, kind of, you have to think in terms of the outcome. Uh, and instead of, I think where a lot of people fall short is they give one part of the solution. And so, for example, as a marketing agency, we were really are working with marketing agencies. We were really successful because people don't just want leads. They wanted sh- sales appointments. They wanted shows. So we changed the whole narrative from we're in the lead business to we are in the shows business. And the marketing agencies that worked with us were able to make that kind of switch. So in every single market, whether it be HVAC, uh, you know, home services, et cetera, uh, I actually work with, with somebody locally here who uh, uh, does some work on my house. And I'm like, you don't just mow lawns and painters don't just paint, they actually deliver something else. And so you have to figure out what that something else is so that you look and feel different to the market. Yeah, I think this is very, very essential. And something that I think back to expectation setting takes a while to click and become your default mode of thinking because there's, I think it's easy for these examples to make sense to people. And then there's another level to the game that I'm still not quite at yet where it's like your default mode of thinking for any time you're presenting something to market versus like, okay, I understand that example. I see the difference. And then I'm still going to sell mechanisms rather than outcomes. Yeah. So if you're an existing business, I'll give you kind of a tip here. Um, we're all familiar with the concept of niching down, mm-hmm. which in the context most people talk about it is like a marketing effort. So be very clear about who you want to talk to. The purpose, though, in niching down is to be able to articulate the person who you want to attract to articulate their problem or their desire better than they can. So if you have an existing business, here's what you do. Take your existing customer base and find the people that stay with you the longest and or pay you the most. And I will guarantee you there will be some similarities in that group of people. They want a certain thing. So the question would be for that person who wants that outcome, how do you put together the full puzzle? 
because most people only give a couple of the pieces. So you might only offer one part. If there is a gap that you currently cannot provide, go find someone who can do those things and sign an affiliate relationship with them for sending a client to them and market to your client that you have the whole picture because you are the person that they know, like, and trust. There is nothing in the rule book that says that you also have to be the provider of every piece of that. And I think that's where people stop. They are fearful or uncertain about how, even if I wanted to do all these things, it feels like added complexity and it feels like added risk. And arguably, I would say, you have to use a, a, a analogy that we've used, you know, that was very common for us. Like, I was not a physical therapist, but I had people who needed physical therapy services. I could hire a chiropractor, I could hire a physical therapist, or I could just refer out. And we were giving referral fees to local businesses as appropriate, as disclosed, but like, that's what our client wanted. And I wasn't going to do it in-house, but we ended up making money on that. There will be things inside of your business that your core client wants and desires. I didn't need help teasing them out. They came to mind just from you talking about them. One thing that I'll just to give some context, additional examples for whoever's listening. You know, I shared that we do a lot of like data work, data related work and building reports and architecture and all of that so that people have like the infrastructure to have insights into their data. And one piece that sometimes is missing for us is, or for the clients, is someone to actually go in and be an analyst and to like live in that specific set of data and to marinate in like the specific context you notice when there's something that's not right or like just anything that's just, there's someone to build the tools and there's someone to actually live in the tools every day and like see that. And that's something that we're like, that doesn't scale very well because you have to like really be kind of obsessive over those particular numbers to like see the patterns. And that's something that we've turned down some deals that like needed that piece when that's not, you know, that obnoxious of a need in terms of like, it's not, most of these things are, again, someone is providing that service. Mm -hmm. And to be able to charge more to offer the complete service would certainly bring in the margin to add that into our package or to refer it out and make the deal work. Spot on. Hey, you're exactly right. And so it's, you want to be the go-to provider. I mean, we had, if somebody believes that you have their best intention, uh, they will ask every question. I mean, this is, this is what uh, Zappos basically built their business on, right? Like customer service. Like if you have a question, come to us. You know, the, the famous example uh, for them was somebody called customer service and said, I want to order a pizza. You know, can you, and, and they did it because that was the edict was, you know, to fulfill the customer's desire, right? In that, in that respect, think about how you can be so incredibly invaluable to your core client and ask them. There are ways to tease out what they want and what you may not be giving them because guaranteed if they're not doing it with you, they're going somewhere else. Find those dollars. We think about it in terms of wallets. It would be silly for me to say, I am not going to eat today because I have a gym membership or I'm not going to sign up for the gym membership because uh, my grocery you know, budget, they're two separate line items. So think about what are the various wallets, the various budgets that somebody who is your core client, you can tap into. And that will increase your ability to capture more value without sacrificing. It's not, a, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not like if I ask for more, they're going to cut my, they're going to cut their spend with me. It doesn't work that way. You can actually expand your reach inside of uh, that, that financial profile. That makes a lot of sense. One thing you've mentioned a couple of times now is, and this is the question I was asking, is the importance and the value that comes from people knowing you, liking you, and trusting you. 
in back to accelerating timelines, one of the easiest ways to shortcut that, maybe there's a better word than shortcut, but to not have to spend as much time building that is to, again, borrow that from, from referral partners. What's the role that you see that playing in the types of businesses that you consult? And how do you advise people to make that a channel that does more work for them than it currently does? Oh, I, I see what your question is. Okay. So yeah, so there's three ways you can acquire a client, right? There is basically paid ads or paid acquisition. There's organic slash branding, and there's JVs and partnerships. When people start out, I think they underappreciate the idea of the JV partnership route, and they typically go either the organic and paid ads route. So in a similar vein, uh, you know, a channel partners or affiliate relationships and things like that is like fishing with a fishing net rather than a fishing pole. So if you can find complementary, the, the, the intersection is having the same core client that you service in different ways, in complementary ways. The ways to do it, are there's really two primary kind of best practices. So one is doing some kind of list swap. And the second is doing some kind of joint event. So if you are a B2B or even a B2C business uh, provider, you know, find the other kind of services that are ancillary to yours, that are kind of just one step to the side uh, and say, hey, we, we share a common client. I solve this problem. You solve this problem. Let's do an, a joint event together. Uh, and we share the registration list. So from a lead gen perspective, you get more names. So more people in your, your universe. And number two, you get the shared uh, kind of support of the other person. And so you are edified in that relationship because you're chosen to be on that event. So the affiliates and, and, and partnerships, I think, are, uh, are a great way for any business to really accelerate their growth simply because it allows them to get their story out in a way that it's not a cold introduction. How do you overcome the perceived, maybe it's incorrectly perceived, but unpredictability of that as a partnership? For example, if you have someone that has this, so obviously if you plan an event, you plan an event and whatever comes from it comes from it versus there's something nice and linear and predictable about, all right, we spend a thousand dollars every single day at ads, period. That's what we get customers versus one of my referral partners has a client that comes their way. They feel that we're a good fit. They make an introduction and that's not on a predictable cadence. So it's like, maybe that happens twice a week. Maybe that happens once every two months. And I can't, you know, forecast and budget based on, is someone just going to like pop up in my inbox today with a lead? Yes or no? I have no idea because they're not like accountable to it. There's no quotas and there's no, I mean, accountability, right? It's just kind of like, yeah, if we see someone who's a good fit, we'll let you know. And is it just like, do you serve, do you overpass that with just blitzing quantity or are there other ways to overcome that problem? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. So the first is JVs can be structured. So take a webinar, for example. Webinar metrics are fairly well fleshed out once you kind of get it right. Usually it has to do with format and, and presentation and things like that. But if you get X number of attendees, you'll generally get with a decent offer, you'll get Y kind of outcome, right? So you can there's a conversion metric that, uh, that you can shoot for. So if you said, I'm going to do one webinar a week with a different channel partner, Although each one may be variable, you will have a very somewhat sophisticated you know, system of a pipeline that will feed you over the course of time. So that's kind of one piece to it. The second is, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, paid ads was the example you used. You know, most of the time that's kind of more of a direct response vehicle. Um, that's like saying, I'm going to put out an Instagram post right now, unless you get paid for it, you know, it's, it's hard to do direct ROI. 
So from my perspective, I'm looking at how do we build a scalable, sustainable business? And there's a place for all three of those. You have to have brand, I mean, especially in the world today. You know, paid acquisition has its merits and then doing joint ventures and, and partnerships uh, and having channel partners. But I think the idea of having one partner and they're going to feed you consistently, I think is a little bit of a fallacy. Uh, but if you can build a matrix of those, of kind of a, a patchwork of those, if you will, um, you can actually get some pretty good uh, consistency. The last thing I'll say here is, you know, it's there's the, there's a call it a 10-80-10 rule, which is when it comes to leads. If you get 100 leads, 10 people will immediately say yes, because you prime them right, they're the right person, the message resonated, and the offer resonated. 10% will automatically say no, they will always say no. The middle 80 take time. And I think there is a misconception that once somebody opts in for something, that like they're as good as sold. And it just doesn't work that way. There's actually five stages you actually have to walk a lead through in order for them to know, like, and trust you and become a buyer. The question is, what do you do about them? So yes, it may take 90 days of nurturing to get part of that 80 to move into the buying pool. It might not be direct response, but if you can get them on an email list, if you can have multiple experiences, if you can generate time on brand, uh, and you will find that if you kind of just start that, there's a little gap to get started, and then that will feed you for a very long time. And I think just because it's not direct today, they're still valuable uh, efforts to put forward because they will bear fruit over time. Yeah, I think some pieces there that were very helpful were having a one, not expecting one particular partner to take care of your marketing forever. And then in particular as well, having some sort of ongoing collaborative experience, like something concrete. So like doing a, a webinar together is a very more sophisticated form of collaboration than just saying, well, you know, their account manager knows that we do this. So when it comes up, we'll come up. And versus like an organizational wide, pu a public um, collaboration between the two companies, again, with some cadence to it as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I have a client right now that I'm working with who is in kind of the real estate space. And we are working on formalizing how do you take these kind of one-off referrals and create a, an actual business platform for consistency. So it's very interesting you ask that question because there are ways to do it. We're actually working on one uh, that we believe to be strategically uh, valuable uh, and actually going to be good for kind of all parties involved. Um, but yes, I, I am a big believer in, you know, kind of over time, um, Fishing with a fishing with a net, and some of those things take a little bit of time to, to flesh out and get working. Uh, but then they will actually last for a very long time. The idea of you know, hey, I'm I'm a painter. Anytime somebody wants services, you know, keep me in mind. That's not a channel partner. That's a loosely formed referral network. And the other person's job is not to bring you business because most people think what's in it for me. So yeah, you have to think about kind of what the incentives are and how do you structure those things. No, it's been a very a very critical piece of our business. So definitely something I try to think about like maximizing. It's like doubling down on what's working while also building resiliency. I mean, all the different pieces of the puzzle, making it work. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do some bonus questions. You mentioned uh, very impressively, right, that you've sat as the number two for two now billionaires. I kind of assume they were also in that CEO role. What do you think made them really, like what characteristics made them? Because I don't know if they were billionaires at the time or just kind of you're at whatever kind of plot points on their growth trajectories. But what do you think led them to, maybe it's what about them that you admired that made you kind of choose to work with them in the first place? Or just like what in general do you think 
stood out about them that made them, because plenty of CEOs that are very good, don't go anywhere near that far. Yeah. So uh, one common thread uh, is speed. They are very diligent and very quick with decision-making, with execution, things like that. Uh, and so, you know, I think that is one thing that I've seen, call it decisiveness, but also uh, they'll execute very, very quickly. That's the first. The second is they have a very strong sense of how to build a team directly around them. I mean, you kind of hear about, you know, a CEO's, CEO's job ultimately is to make like two to four, I think uh, uh, Jeff Bezos said this, my job is to make two to four good decisions a year. And I'm thinking three years out. Most struggling business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs are ones who are stuck in the weeds far too much. So the, the people I'm speaking that I'm thinking about are ones who understood what they're good at and they got rid of everything else. Uh, and they are able to stay in their very, very highly leveraged zone of genius. Uh, they don't have full calendars and things like that. It just looks very different than I think without that experience, I would have expected it uh, to, to look like. And last, they understand value vehicles. They have an operating team and an executing team right around them, but their network of people, uh, they've built very, very, a very, very strong network of people with a, which allow them to tap into different kind of sources of, of money, attention, and whatever the value, value vehicle is. Um, you know, you kind of hear about, you know, people that are multi, you know, very successful multiple times. A lot of that is because they have the skills to do it and they have the, the networks and experience and, and exposure vehicles to, uh, to do that. So those would be kind of major things. It's, they just, they operate differently and it's actually slower in pace, meaning like they're not frantic, but they're decisive and then they move and they're not willing to be wrong. They just don't bet the farm. They understand the difference between one-way doors and two-way doors. And the difference being, can you recover from that? Far too many new business owners bet the farm the first time around. And it's like, if this one doesn't work, I'm out. Our goal should be to stay in the game long-term. So how can you do that? And there's lots of reasons why people do that and why it's a misstep. But uh, yeah, stay in the game, be decisive, execute, learn, iterate, go fast. What are you currently doing to level up personally? I think obviously the experience of, I don't want to say shadowing, just being in the room with those types of people for day in, day out for decades uh, is an incredible experience. What do you have present day to kind of stay sharp? It's it's funny. It's a very, very quickly. Uh, so within a couple of days, about a week from now, I am going completely off the grid for about five days with 15 other seven, six, seven, and eight figure entrepreneurs, business owners. Uh, call it a mastermind call it you know, what, what you will. I expect that to be a life-changing experience for me uh, because I'm going to be around people who are uh, kind of just ahead of me a, a step or two uh, in execution, thought, things like that without any distraction. Uh, I am a big believer myself in mentors. Uh, I believe in kind of buying and participating in access with people who, who bring me forward. And then quite frankly, it's going to be the complete opposite, which is I am spending a lot of time right now of understanding why I like doing what I'm doing, what my intention is, uh, my vision for myself over the next six months or so is to find a way to attract people to me because we have shared belief systems, because we have shared vision. I believe it to be possible to the, the clients I have right now, they, they have said, uh, I am with you because of who you are, not because of what you know. 
And I think if I can do a better job of packaging who I am, that it will resonate with the right people and potentially repel those that are, that are not a fit. So I think it's a lot more about me understanding who I am and what I want to be and what it means to the marketplace, uh, rather than can I just figure out a better performing funnel? Yeah. And then also, you know, maybe you agree with this, maybe not, but making who you are something that whatever X, 10 X, a hundred X, a thousand X people are aware of. Cause if that's already a thing that's happened successfully where the right type of people are finding you and are drawn to you because of who you are, because it's a good fit. It's like, well, there's a lot of people like them out there and just do all of them know about you yet or enough of them. Yeah. It's it. Uh, and in getting back to, you know, niching and, and the, the concept of like, who do I want to work with? You know, I'd rather somebody be attracted to me by how I think and what I kind of who I am. Um, even if you look slightly different. So if we have common belief systems and you like, I mean, the average person, uh, who, comes into our world right now and, and how someone comes into your world is how long they stay, uh, has consumed at least uh, eight pieces of content that I put out there. So they already know who I am, what I stand for, what it's like. So it's not a, a surprise. Uh, and that has absolutely changed the game for me over the last uh, six months or so. What are those, some of them, beliefs and attributes and values that make someone kind of aligned? Because that's slightly more ideological and mission-driven than like, you know, business in this category in this revenue range. It's more, it's deeper than that. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in working seven days a week. Uh, I don't believe the hustle and grind thing is a real thing. I think it's an excuse. Um, I believe that we, it is possible to build a substantial business uh, with certain constraints. Uh, those constraints being around time, being around resources, being around uh, just kind of being smarter about the things that we're doing. So uh, building a leverage like versus just doing a lot more things. Uh, and if you are, for example, I was a 20 something, uh, you know, guy, not that long ago, uh, maybe longer than I'd like to admit, but, um, you know, the idea of like more for the badge of the ego honor of like, I'm always busy. I have three kids. I want to spend time with them. I don't need to be always busy. And actually the more constraints I've put on my time, the more productive I've been, the better, more success I've been, I've had. So Thinking about that way, uh, people who appreciate the idea of having a mentor, um, some people I meet with and they're like, I would never pay you the type of money that you would need uh, because I just, they just don't value it. It's like, well, you're going to pay the price of ignorance one way or the other. Everybody makes their choice. Uh, and so trying to find people who value and can actually accept the idea that maybe something's not there, they didn't come up with it. Um, you'd be shocked at the number of people that are like, I want to go and have the honor of fighting the battle and the badge of like, I figured it out. Well, that, that takes you 15 years and the verge of bankruptcy, like that is a path. Or I can just give you a fairly, and you know, a, a fairly good answer uh, right now. And then we'll work together to, to dial it in. Two very different types of people. So I'm trying to attract someone who values the idea of shortening the learning curve, uh, leverage in time, leverage in product, leverage in, in finance, uh, leverage in attention. Uh, if those are not valuable to you, we probably won't see eye That makes sense. I think that's something that my partner and I have, uh, I really put a strong emphasis on us, like internalizing a lot of those mm -hmm. in the sense of like, there's nothing glorious about if this journey sucks. It's like, that didn't, what was the point of that? Yeah. And also, again, everything that has been figured out already, there's no glory in figuring it out for ourselves. It's like, we didn't start this to, again, for very ego-driven purposes of like, 
the glory of like, look at this hard thing I did. It's like, no, it's like, this is a high leverage way of living a life is kind of the fundamental belief that like in the long run, this will be a better time for value trade than other economic games we could be playing. So let's, let's play this one rather than like the, the business is the purpose of life. It's like so far from that. Yeah. But again, a lot of people haven't, don't share it, may, might not share that perspective, might not have the battle scars of like, if there is an easier way to do it, I was the kid who always found the hardest way to do things. And so this has been really a concerted effort on my part to almost rewire myself because I look, I looked for the majority of my life for complexity because I, for whatever reason, felt like if you can succeed in complexity, that you all, you know, have some kind of uh, status given to you because you did the hard thing. I think some of that is just kind of rooted in, in education and, and things like that. I would agree with uh, that. You know, so it's like, if there's an easier way to do it, uh, I now see very clearly that you don't get extra bonus points. You know, you don't get bonus points for uh, uh, for slaying a, a, a dragon of your own creation. Hmm, I like that. You don't get bonus points for slaying a dragon of your own creation. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of these snippets, lots of value kind of dripped along the way here. I think that's also one thing I want to emphasize again. It's so difficult for people for whatever reason to overcome that hurdle of paying for access for information and paying to like shorten timelines. I think that's probably one of the biggest things I'm grateful for that I've like overcome in the past year is just like I've bought several coaches that were expensive considering what it was at the time. But it's like even with like a three month or a six month or a 12 month payback period, which is really not how long you should be giving these because it's like you have the rest of your life to capitalize on the improved decision making and the new ways of thinking. But it's like each of them within three to six months had just at least re returned twofold. And I still am not standing on that large of a system of levers and resources. It's like if you're staying on a bigger ship, right, it's like that tiny correction mm -hmm. covers it a million times over. Yeah. And just getting over that hurdle is huge for me. Is there any way that you additionally kind of help people get over that gap? I think some of it, you know, the psychology of patience is hard. The reason why I kind of attract the people that I do, generally speaking, are not the ones who say, if I cannot get a one day, one week, one month repayment period that I'm out in business, I generally don't attract those types of people simply because if that is your mindset, and I have, I've been to the edge, I've looked over the edge, like I have no fault of anyone who's like, if you want to put risk on the table, I've done that a thousand times. So I don't, I don't scoff at that in any way, shape or form. But the idea of like, this needs to be something for me now is not reality. It's what you're going to make of it. And you have to appreciate the idea of playing along. So to your point, like if I have access to a mentor today, I can carry that for decades. So the difference is what, what time period are we evaluating the decision? And if you are always the immediate, like it needs to be today, you will play short-term games forever. You will actually never escape that. So psychologically, you have to break this idea of, I'm going to make a decision today and I'm not even going to think about it for a year. If you can get to that mindset, you will be shocked at the amount of things that will come to you. I think this will be my last question. Are there any specific um, interesting investments you made kind of early on in your professional career that were uh, over the course of your career turned out to be very high returning? So maybe like masterminds or events or paid things that you did early on that really paid off in the scheme of things? Yeah, so I... I I don't want to steal. Alex and I still work, are in touch and, and close. So it's, he's done some things on, he he kind of took the trademark of like, instead of thinking about investing in like the S&P 500, 
uh, invest in the S and me 500. So the idea of building a set of skills and knowledge within yourself, I think it's really easy to think about like, go trade crypto and go flip couches and go and do all these other things. If you just took the first five years, the first 10 years, whatever it might be, and all you did, you didn't invest in anything else. All you did was buy mastermind courses and learn how to do copywriting and learn how to sell and all these kind of foundational skills. You will be able to print money whenever you want it, however you want it. And I think that idea is not sexy in the short term because it looks like sacrifice and invisible progress rather than a bank balance. You can't screenshot your knowledge in your head and put it on Instagram and get kudos for it. A lot easier to post the Lambo, right? So if you can get over that, you will be so much further ahead. Um, but to answer your question, I always, part of it was I, I didn't know any better. I was 20, 22, 23 uh, when we started raising all this money. Um, I talked to people that were decades older than me. I was always the youngest guy in the room. Uh, and I learned the skills of how to speak properly, how to conduct myself in that room. I did it through more sweat equity than like buying a course. Um, but I think we undervalue those things today. Uh, but for where the big money is, those things are actually highly valued. So, you know, if you want to be extraordinary, you have to be extraordinary by definition. And the thing I would have done, quite frankly, had I do it all over again, is I would have hired a therapist very soon in my life. Because if you can't, if you can clear your head as early as possible, not be like laden by whatever crap is in your head, um, you will have extraordinary success because all your limitations are in your head. And if you can be free and clear of those, the world is an amazing place. It just took me a lot longer than I would have liked to come to those conclusions. I think that's a very specific and actionable answer. Where are you most active right now for people who want to consume your content, consider themselves as a potential fit for you, all of those different things. Yeah, uh, Instagram is a great place. Instagram and LinkedIn, uh, tim.calise on Instagram uh, and tkalise uh, on LinkedIn. Um, and if you are listening to the show, I'd love to give you uh, an additional bonus. Uh, so if you go to Instagram and DM me LKS, I'm going to send you a special gift. So DM me go. the words, the letters LKS. Uh, and I will send you a, a special gift for being, uh, being a listener in the show. Yeah, for people who didn't connect the dots, Lewis and Kyle show. That's uh, exactly. that's how we derived that. So it can stick out in your memory. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much, Tim.